This episode of the Security Ledger Podcast is sponsored by LastPass. For more than 47,000 businesses of all sizes, LastPass reduces friction for employees while increasing control and visibility for IT with an access solution that's easy to manage and effortless to use. From single sign-on and password management to adaptive authentication, LastPass gives superior control to IT and frictionless access to users. Check it out at lastpass.com. Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast, number 197. Every account that you create, entering your credit card, entering your email address and your shipping address, all that information just helps to paint a picture about you. So attackers are looking to steal anything they can, put it on the dark web, and then it sort of gets pieced together. What does holiday shopping season mean in the midst of a once-a-century pandemic? Lots and lots of e-commerce, but all that online shopping increases consumers' cyber risk. In part two of the podcast this week, we're joined by Katie Petrillo of LastPass to talk about what online risks shoppers should be on the lookout for and how to up their password game in 2021. But first, every day this week brought new revelations about a compromise of U.S. government networks by Russian government hackers. As of Thursday, the U.S. Cyber Security and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, was dispensing with niceties, warning that it had determined that the Russian hackers, quote, pose a grave risk to the federal government and state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, as well as critical infrastructure entities and other private sector organizations. The incident recalls another from the not-so-distant past, the devastating compromise of the government's Office of Personnel Management in 2014, an attack attributed to adversaries from China that exposed the government's personnel records, some of its most sensitive data, to a foreign power. Now, this attack, which is so big that it's hard to even know what to call it. Unlike the 2014 incident, it isn't concentrated on a single federal agency. In fact, the hack isn't even limited to the federal government. State, local, and tribal governments have likely been affected, in addition to hundreds or even thousands of private sector firms, including Microsoft, which acknowledged Thursday that it found instances of the software compromised by the Russians— the SolarWinds Orion product, in its own environment. How did we get it so wrong? According to our guest this week, the failures were everywhere. Calls for change following the OPM hack fell on deaf ears in the U.S. Congress. But the government also failed to properly assess new risks, such as software supply chain attacks that multiply as new applications and computing models were embraced across the federal government. Greg Tuhill is the president of the federal group of the secure infrastructure company AppGate Federal. He currently serves as a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College, and in a prior life, Greg was a brigadier general and the first federal chief information security officer of the United States. In this conversation, General Tuhill and I talk about the hack of the U.S. government that's come to light, the failures of policy and practice that led up to it, and what the government can do to get itself back on a solid footing and a new path. Hi, I'm Greg Tuhill, president of AppGate Federal, a cybersecurity and advanced technology company. I'm also a retired Air Force Brigadier General. 
Greg, I'll note in addition to your current role, you were former chief information security officer for the U.S. government. I was. And before (laughs) that, I was at uh, DHS as the deputy assistant secretary and uh, concurrently serving as the director of the NCIC, the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. And not to pile on, but you're also a faculty member at Carnegie Mellon. Yep. (laughs) So obviously been slacking. So a really great person to have on the podcast this week, General, to talk about the uh, incident that's come up and, you know, we're reading about now with the attack, the compromise of SolarWinds, a a large IT uh, services provider to the U.S. government uh, that led to what appears to be a fairly widespread uh, attack uh, on U.S. government agencies uh, that use the uh, SolarWinds Orion platform, I uh, I guess I'll start at just at the high level of uh, you know what were your thoughts on reading about this, uh, given your past uh, work at senior levels of the uh, U.S. government? Well, you know, in light of the uh, revelations that uh, Kevin Mandia brought forth on FireEye and uh, his, his pen testing and hunting team, and, and now the Orion uh, revel, uh, revelation. I can't help but think that this is part of a broader uh, campaign. And uh, I don't think the uh, adversary groups limited themselves only to FireEye and SolarWinds. I think that there's a a smoking gun, as it were, that would point that uh, this is a supply chain campaign and uh, other parts of the supply chain uh, remain at risk and perhaps undetected. Uh, with an all-hands-on-deck response. You would think they wouldn't stop with one uh, vendor. Um, you know, this this is coming about uh, five years after the OPM attack, um, and obviously there, there were lessons learned from that. Is this, in your eyes, failing to implement some of those lessons, or is this just a whole new front uh, that we now, uh, you know, federal IT needs to be mindful of maybe in a way that they weren't previously? I'll say both, actually, Paul, because, you know, frankly, there's a lot of lessons learned from OPM that we really have not capitalized on. Uh, I've been a proponent that we really need to rethink the federal IT strategy writ large. We've got uh, small departments and agencies that are underfunded and undermanned and outgunned, but yet we uh, require them to do the exact same level of uh, cyber protections as we do, you know, as we expect of the Department of Defense, DHS, and some of the large well-funded agencies that are out there. So, you know, our strategy, I think, is misaligned. Uh, How we appropriate uh, dollars, uh, how we architect for uh, a successful defense of the people's information, all of that uh, we called for change during the aftermath of the OPM breach. And uh, frankly, I think it's fallen on deaf ears in both Congress and uh, in in the current administration right now. In in this particular case, it seems like, um, you know, malicious actors probably affiliated with the government of Russia were able to uh, obtain and then tamper with a software update for the SolarWinds Orion, which is kind of a network management uh, tool um, and and basically implant a backdoor into a signed software update. So this was, you know, again, signed update from the vendor, but with a Russian backdoor in it that then, of course, got got distributed out to, to many different agencies. In fact, 
think Ars Technica reported some 18,000 downloads of those um, compromised update files by organizations of all types. Gosh, where do you where do you even start with that? Is there an easy fix to a problem like that, where again the malicious actors have actually uh, inserted themselves into the software update process and and implanted a backdoor and then signed the update from the vendor so that it's gonna it's gonna check out on the customer side? Huh. Well, you know, a couple, let me unpack that, Paul, for you. Uh, a couple things. First of all, anybody who says that, oh, I got an easy fix for this, uh, has never actually had to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it, it's like those folks who say, oh, I'm a cybersecurity expert. No, I have yet to meet a cybersecurity expert. I've met a lot of highly skilled uh, people, but- Right, right. It, it's so broad. It's a, it's a big topic, right, right. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, from our perch as a product company, um, upon- the reports, we went and we verified the integrity of our crown jewels, our code base, um, you know, our development uh, environments. And frankly, we um, we use AppGate SDP, our own product, to protect our, ourselves. And uh, we did not find any evidence of tampering uh, with our review. But then again, you know, we do not use that particular product that has been known to have been breached. Uh, but I think as you take a look throughout the community, uh, we all have to assume there's a breach. And uh, based on that, you have to hunt. You have to uh, check and verify the integrity of your products and your capabilities to make sure that they've not been tampered with. And this is a time for the community to band together. Uh, I greatly appreciate the leadership of FireEye in sounding the alarm and sharing the information. It's been very helpful uh, thus far. And, um, you know, it seems that CISA, uh, you know, with their uh, conference call that they put out on Monday, that was helpful, but uh, there's still a lot of more information that we are hopeful that the government will share so that we can make sure that we better harden that supply chain. But that said, Paul, I think that uh, there's more products out there that uh, are at grave risk and Mm -hmm. that their customers are at risk. Uh, of having some of those products having backdoors put in as well. Right. You know, once you've focused your attention on this particular compromise, you know, your mind sort of boggles of sort of saying, well, you know, okay, one vendor, but, you know, who's to say there aren't more? And in how many updates, you know, then you're starting to look at every update, right, <laughs> from every vendor and saying, well, how do we know if that one's not been tampered with? What's their target? You know, we're paying trillions of dollars for an exquisite intelligence community and a cyber man. Hey guys, you know, tell us what the target is so that we can, you know, prioritize and triage. Um, and we've heard crickets from the intelligence community thus far, which is kind of frustrating for those of us who in fact do have security clearances and who, who are part of that critical information technology sector. Uh, there's some frustration out there right now on the lack of information flow and by target, you mean what? What are they after? What is the purpose of this of this uh, operation? Is that what you mean? Sure. And, and yeah. if you take a look at it, Paul, if if you don't know what the target is, then you disperse your resources to try to check everywhere. But if you have a better understanding of what the target set is, then you can do what in the military we call is economy of force and unity of effort, where you can work to harden that uh, high value target, which is the actual target. And um, you, by economy of force, you're not wasting your effort trying to guard things that are meaningless, you know. So 
uh, as we take a look at it from a community standpoint, at this point, if the target is in fact to insert chaos and a lack of trust into the, the efficacy of our cybersecurity tools to protect us, maybe that's mission accomplished in and of itself. But, yeah, I was I was going to say maybe maybe you know again we're talking about Russia here, so maybe there isn't a specific target so much as either just wholesale information harvesting or you know again yeah sowing uh, doubt and um, and distrust within you know government agencies. Yeah, it could be that. Uh, however, you know well, let's take a look at one of those bright glimmers of uh, hope out there. Uh, you know. Ultimately, the information that the federal government uh, owns is that of the people of the United States. And we have a free and open society. Certainly, we want from a privacy standpoint that private information is protected. But, you know, it's not like we're a totalitarian regime or, you know, we're not going to make sure that that information is not available to the people. But that said, um, th this is a five alarm fire. And if getting into the federal government, what about critical infrastructure? Uh, you know, those those are some of the targets that I'm I'm really concerned about. In addition to the government breach, one of the one of the kind of you know buzzwords that's being thrown around, as you know, is is this concept of zero trust networking, um, which is definitely uh, has a lot of interest in the private sector. I'm not sure where the federal government is on moving towards zero trust, but a lot of folks are looking at this and saying this is really the model that we need to be going to. Just from your experience, what would what would implementing a, a, a program like zero trust networking at the federal government level entail? Well, first, Paul, uh, thanks for that. I don't think that zero trust uh, should be considered a buzz phrase. I think it should be considered a business imperative. And it yep. doesn't matter if you're in the government or in the private sector. And I've been talking about the need to pivot to a zero trust uh, security strategies, uh, you know, while I was in government. And, uh, you know, I think it's so important that when I pivoted out uh, and retired from uh, federal government the second time, uh, I I've been a proponent in uh, working towards uh, putting zero trust uh, as a security strategy uh, in, in both public and private sector. And I teach that in, to my students at Carnegie Mellon, mm -hmm. uh, but, but I'm involved in the industry to uh, make that happen. And, and I take a look at zero trust um, as opposed to the traditional perimeter-based security strategy that we've been following in network enterprises everywhere. Uh, and sadly, that perimeter-based approach, if you peel back the onion, Paul, we've been using that perimeter-based approach of security uh, ever since Sun Tzu and Alexander the Great were generals marching around the earth. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, as a War College graduate, uh, I'll tell you, <laughs> um, it's not lost on me that Sun Tzu and Alexander the Great didn't have um, iPhones, mobile computing, cloud computing, the internet. Um, yes. Uh, right. We've got to change our. The, the, the first Trojan horse was, in fact, the Trojan horse. <laughs> yeah. You know. <laughs> well, is, uh, gee whiz, we can talk about uh, Greek tragedies, too. Right, right. But we've got to change our strategy. We really need to rethink. And um, zero trust is not just a buzzword, uh, it, it is a legitimate security strategy. And sadly, the, the government has been 
in a state of paralysis by analysis. They've been looking at it for years and they have not necessarily been implementing it. I'll, I'll give a shout out to the United States Air Force because they actually, in my opinion, uh, have taken the lead. Uh, Nicholas Shalan, the uh, chief software officer of the United States Air Force has been implementing zero trust in protecting the DevSecOps environment of the Air Force. Uh, he, he's brilliant. Uh, General Wedgerman, General uh, Hawk, General Radigi, and the folks at Air Combat Command, uh, they, they're moving forward now um, uh, on it. But I think the rest of the departments and agencies and military departments uh, are lagging behind and uh, nation state actors are taking advantage of that. Um, obviously, we're, you know, one of the big changes I think that's that we saw in the last four years with the Trump administration is more of an emphasis on kind of defend forward and so on. And uh, I was reading the CNN um, article or, or a report that they did with Bellingcat on, um, on yeah. some of the some of the strategies they use to track the, the people uh, alleged to have participate in the poisoning of um, uh, Mr. Navalny. Right. Um, it, it would seem to me that, um, you know, it's sort of one of those people in glass houses uh, type scenarios that uh, there appears to be uh, plenty of opportunity out there for adversaries of Russia. Uh, one question is strategically for any countries involved in this type of uh, operation, knowing that eventually you will be found out, um, you know, kind of where where does where do we end up here? Is there a sort of mutually assured destruction type mindset that takes hold, or this is this just kind of the the spy games of the twenty first century? Just like there were, you know, during the Cold War, there were there were spy operations going on all over the world, and it was just a part of the the uh, state of play. Well, I think we really need to rethink our cyber deterrence strategy because uh, whatever it is right now, it ain't working. Uh, you know. Um, and sure, you know, as we take a look at where we want to go forward, it's, um, I'm already seeing chatter, uh, through, you know, the different newspapers that are out there where, uh, folks are, you know, sounding different kind of alarm bells. I'm hearing some folks say, you know, let's hold these companies accountable, blah, 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 you know, uh, bad on them, bad dog. Um, and on the same token, I'm hearing, you know, folks up on the hill saying, Oh well, you know this administration screwed up, and that administration screwed up. Uh, you know, that's just okay. Thanks. There's a uh, uh, you know, there's there's a place for that. You know, when when we have an airplane crash in the Air Force, um, we don't immediately take the wing commander out and shoot him in the back of the head and say, you know, you failed. Um, what we do is is we convene two concurrent uh, boards. The the first investigation board is the safety investigation, where we go out there and we say, okay, so what happened? We want to prevent this from happening to another pilot, let's say. Um, and, and that gets everybody's interest. You know, it's let's go find out what happened. Was there a material failure, et cetera? Can, you know, then we have the, the, uh, the accident investigation board where we find out the facts and circumstances. And sometimes people do get fired because they didn't follow proper procedures or whatever. Um, but if we find as part of the investigation that the procedures or the tools or the airplane sucked, you know, <laughs> then we're not going to take that wing commander out and shoot him. Um, we need to have a really sober, you know, uh, investigation here and, and one that's 
done with velocity and precision. We don't want to over, you know, wait forever while we're under attack. Um, but we, we don't want to overreact either so that we lose sight of what the strategic targets are. And the strategic uh, objective is to protect national prosperity and national security. And right now, both are at risk because we don't have attack characterization. We don't have attribution. We don't have information as to what their end game is. And as a result, if we're not uh, careful, mature, and deliberate, we're going to just flail. And now's not a time for finger pointing. Now's the time for buckling our chin straps because we're under attack. And having uh, had direct and indirect fire with the bullets whistling, uh, whistling by at one point, um, I, I'm more concerned about uh, protecting national security and national prosperity than, uh, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll find whether or not there's some blame, but, but let's do things the right way, the right time. And, uh, you know, there, there's, there's more to be learned because I think that these goobers, uh, they're elsewhere. Let's go uh, find out what our real risk exposure is before they mm. pull another trigger. Sure. Okay, final question. Um, obviously, we, we're not exactly sure what the timeline of this attack is, but it, it seems like it stretches back, um, it, you know, uh, at least to the summer and, and probably back to the before that. Would it surprise you to learn at the end of the day that some of the changes necessitated by COVID, including, you know, remote work, either uh, in the in the government sector or out there in the suppliers, you know, solar, wind, and the, uh, you know, provided a, a, an opportunity and opening uh, for these uh, adversaries to uh, insert themselves into the software supply chain and, and also to carry out this attack? Paul, I think your Jedi skills are impressive. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that if you take a look at uh, a, a couple of other smoking candles in the back corner of the room. As you take a look at all these pieces coming together, you could make a really good case that, uh, first of all, they were thinking about this well beforehand, and they probably executed in that supply chain. Given the, the vulnerable code deck, this happened well before the pandemic. But I think that as I take a look at the evidence that's available right now, um, things like everybody in the particular industry, and for, according to the uh, Department of Commerce, 42% of the uh, workforce pivoted to a work from home. Uh, the vast majority of them have been using VPNs, virtual private networks, for their secure remote access. Mm -hmm. VPNs are elderly technology. They made their first appearance the same year the Palm Pilot did, and Eric yeah. Jeep was a rookie for the Yankees. Um, We've still got folks saying, well, VPN equals secure remote access. When there's better secure remote access capabilities out there that are more modern and secure. Heck, we've had, uh, I've lost count at a dozen. Um, there's easily now a dozen and a half, uh, maybe two dozen uh, government alerts since the pandemic started on uh, VPN vulnerability. Uh, we've seen old malware like Agent Tesla there is an Agent Tesla uh, variant and uh, as a great example that added a keylogger that sniffs for VPN username and password credentials so they can hijack your stream. Yeah. The thing about it is, is we are not necessarily using the most modern and 
most secure and most efficient, you know, uh, technologies. Uh, uh, Software-defined perimeter technology, folks who pivot to that, they see a 75, you know, 50 to 75 percent uh, decrease in costs uh, makes it uh, much less complex for your guys and gals in the server room. The, the help desk calls go down. I can put it on my phone, you know, myself without having an IT tech do it. Uh, you know, we sometimes lose sight of the uh, the forest because of the trees. And uh, as we take a look at where we are going as a result of all these breaches, we really need to take a step back and say. Hey, are we architected for success uh, to meet our objectives? And I think right now, in both government and in the private sector, um, the answer is no. <laughs> we need to rethink and redo. And uh, we invented this stuff. Uh, we can do better. I would tell your audience: don't despair. There's still hope. We, as a community, we need to bind uh, bind together, uh, continue to share information. Uh, but we also need to buckle our chin straps and cinch them down tight because I, I think this is part of a broader campaign. I think we're going to uh, find that uh, these uh, bad guys have gotten into other areas. Um, and, and I'm very hopeful that uh, we're going to get uh, more information that's going to provide context to help focus our efforts as we do our triage, our damage assessment, and uh, look to repivot and implement zero trust as a security strategy uh, to better protect national prosperity and national security. Thank you so much, Greg Tuhill, General Tuhill, for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. My pleasure, Paul. Be safe. Greg Tuhill is a retired brigadier general and president of the federal group of the secure infrastructure company, AppGate. Up next... The malls may be mostly empty this holiday season, but the Amazon trucks come and go with shocking regularity. In pandemic-plagued America, e-commerce has quickly supplanted brick-and-mortar stores as the go-to for consumers who are wary of catching a potentially fatal virus in public. But all that online shopping carries its own risk, identity theft and fraud. And as with the coronavirus, too many Americans are failing to take adequate steps to protect themselves from harm online. In our second segment this week, Katie Petrillo of the firm LastPass joins us in the Security Ledger studio to talk about some of the threats waiting out there for online shoppers and some simple steps that shoppers can take to protect themselves from harm. Katie Petrillo, I'm the Senior Manager of Product Marketing for LastPass here at LogMeIn. Katie, welcome back to Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we're here, uh, it's kind of mid, mid-December, mid and we're in the thick of holiday shopping season. We've got a major snowstorm barreling our way here in Boston. Yep. It's going to make things even probably more compressed on the other side of this. And we're in the middle of a pandemic, which means uh, that a lot of people not only are going to do their holiday shopping season online, but have been doing shopping online for going on a year now. Yeah. Uh, the Amazon trucks come and go pretty much like clockwork. I don't know where you are, but they definitely do where I am. Oh, yeah, constantly. I'm also in the Boston area preparing for that storm. So so I should ask you, how are you on your holiday shopping? I'm actually done. I'm very excited to say that, which Holy is not cow. always the case. I know. Everything is wrapped, too, which that's really the impression. Holy cow. Yeah. 
I think you're 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 shaming some. I'm showing off. Right now. You're showing off. <laughs> yeah. What else do we have to do other than sit online and buy wow. and buy yeah. and get ready? So this this shopping season is truly one like like no other because of the pandemic. Um, you know, malls are not empty, but definitely not you know holiday shopping season crowded, and so many people have just gotten into the habit now of of ordering what they need, whether it's food or clothing or or gifts online. What does that mean, I guess, for online shoppers in terms of their cyber risk and and the security risk? I I know criminals kind of fish where the fish are. So I'm assuming that that they're noting this as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think, you know, when we talked a couple of months ago, I think it was now we were talking about how just even the pandemic itself and how folks were spending more time online was causing that increase in hackers just because, yeah, more fish in the pond. So those hackers are are there. And I think that is continuing to unfortunately be a trend that we're seeing with holiday shopping as well. Um, And, you know, it's just because so many more folks are turning to online to do their holiday shopping. I think there was something that I read something that saw that Black Friday alone on that particular day saw an increase of 25% in their online shopping trends. I mean, I'm even surprised that it wasn't necessarily higher than that. You know, what that means, though, is you're simply putting yourself more at risk with each of those purchases that you do make online. So thinking about every account that you create, so buying gifts for, you know, on sites that you may not normally visit, entering your credit card, entering your your email address and your shipping address, all that information just helps to paint a picture about you. So individually, it may not mean anything, but, you know, attackers are looking to steal anything they can, put it on the dark web, and then it sort of gets pieced together in a way that does all of a sudden start to paint a picture specifically about you that becomes valuable to somebody. And a lot of data is already out there, maybe not through any fault of your own, but, you know, obviously retailers and, and data brokers and so on have, have all been compromised. So um, so that that's part of the background noise as well. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it's only this this risk has only heightened since really since the, be- the beginning of the pandemic. I think there was a stat from the FBI. They said they saw an increase in 400 percent of cybercrime since March, which is crazy. I mean, I can't even like fathom what that really means. But I think what we've seen, how we've seen that present itself is things like phishing attacks or ransomware or something that called East skimming where they're looking for your credit. They're really looking to scan a site for credit card numbers or payment information. And I think these are risks that at some point felt more abstract, but now they're feeling much closer to home because of how much time, how much information we are putting online. And then also the risks and just how it's presenting itself and coming out um, because there are so many hackers out there really looking to piece all this information together. So what should online shoppers be looking for? I mean, most people, you know, they might go to Amazon.com or BestBuy.com. You know, they're pretty confident that this is a legitimate website. My information is not going to be stolen. Just because the site is secure doesn't necessarily mean that there's not risk as well. So what what should um, online shoppers be worried about? I would say look out for anything that is un- looks unusual. So especially if it's a site like Amazon or somewhere that you do go regularly, like if you're seeing a pop-up or some sort of notification that you don't normally see, take a moment to pause and investigate what, like take a look at that. Don't necessarily click, necessarily click on it, but understand what you're seeing and what might be weird. And if you are see some, seeing something weird, I think it's 
always good. You can certainly Google to see if someone else is having these issues. So what type of data do people need to be protective of? I mean, what are cyber criminals out there interested in and likely to hit you up for? Yeah, it can be, honestly, like I said before, any information starts to build a kind of profile of who, who you are. Obviously, there are very like sensitive and important pieces of information, like your credit card, your any passwords to accounts, like social security numbers, passport numbers, those are higher value. Even those security questions that go into you creating an, a new account and they want to get those backup security questions for you, that piece of information starts to, again, build a profile. And if it's tied to your email address, Somewhere that you might be mentioning your, you know, your first pet's name as a security question answer, then could be added to your profile. And then some sort of a brute force attacker could be using that later. And actually, when you're using your first pet in your password for your bank, it's all of a sudden working against you. So honestly, I think it, it doesn't, I'm sure that feels overwhelming to say this, but like every piece of information does matter. And ultimately, it all ends up sort of being on this dark web that we talk about that is all this information can be sold there. So pet name, uh, <laughs> not secure for password. No, absolutely not. <laughs> Hopefully everybody knows that by now. <laughs> well, I so, um, I mean, let's talk about the password because you mentioned, you know, uh, kind of password reuse, which is the, which is the big, you know, elephant in the living room of online, you know, fraud and, and theft. Um, people have easy to guess or hack passwords. And then to add insult to injury, they reuse those insecure passwords across many, many different sites. <laughs> Help listeners understand what's a secure password and how do you get out of that habit? Because I ask people all the time who are smart, educated people you know, about their password habits, and I get a lot of really sheepish looks, as I'm sure you do as well. Um, so what makes a secure password? Yeah, I'd say two big pieces that go into your password are length and being random. So the longer it is, the harder it is going to be to crack, obviously. Obviously, that doesn't make it more challenging to remember. Um, but I think what you can do is sort of create a phrase. But I think the key to that phrase is my second piece of advice is making it random. So words that short words strung together with symbols and numbers in there in a way that it really doesn't make sense, but it's something that you're able to remember, for example. To be or not to be is already on the, the hacker's <laughs> list of things to try. Exactly. So you're you're going to have to do better than that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the way to go for passwords that you do need to remember, which I would say there should be very, very few of them at, at this point in your life. For a lot, for the majority of your passwords, I would recommend going completely random and putting those passwords and accounts into a password manager that will remember them for you. So where you kind of where you do apply that long random password that you need to remember is just for your password manager. In theory, you could have one that you remember for the rest of your life. That's something that I'm doing now, and I think that's what I don't. I don't even think about passwords when I need a new, when I'm logging into a new account, you know, this new shopping site, I'm buying something, say for my mom, it's a site I don't really go to. I need an account. I just generate a password really like with one click, it gets added into my vault. I have a new account and I move on with my day. It's a non issue. doesn't take extra time. Um, and so I'd say random passwords are hundred percent the way to go, but you do need to be obviously using a password manager because no one is that much of a, and can remember random passwords for everything. 
you've got better things to do than to commit to memory the yeah, exactly. 25 character yeah. alphanumeric right. value. Yeah. Plenty of things to worry about and passwords does not need to be one of them. Yeah. It's a big leap of faith for people to let go of that idea mm-hmm. that they need to be mentally managing and juggling all their own passwords. So, I mean, I found that to be the case. It, it is, it's like a shift that you need to make mentally. Oh, absolutely. It's not something I expect people to let go of and do immediately. I think a good yeah. starting point is simply starting to use a password manager. So just kind of play around with it. Start to add in a couple of your passwords, which you probably can still remember. Add them into LastPass. Let them let LastPass fill that for you on a regular basis. Just going to see how that works. And I think you'll start to see how valuable it can be in your day-to-day for a password manager like LastPass to fill your passwords, to create new accounts. And then I think you'll start to see the value of, oh, great, I can just generate a random password. And I do want LastPass to actually take this over for me. It's definitely a journey. It's not something where people are going to, unless you're fully bought in or maybe, you know, did have some sort of like a hack or a breach that happened with your accounts, like, and you have some sort of compelling reason to go all in. I don't expect people to make that leap right away, which is awesome. Okay, so assuming you get all your your weak password game up to snuff uh, with strong passwords, are there other steps that people should be taking or looking at either in the context of e-commerce and online shopping or just, you know, kind of uh, all the stuff you do online, you know, banking and and, uh, healthcare and all the other stuff? Yeah, I'd be I, I definitely password management is a big piece of it. And one step I want people to be aware of, but it's not the only one. I think the other key piece that you probably heard a little bit about is multi-factor authentication or two-factor authentication. And so adding that onto sites wherever you can, or at least for those really most valuable sites. Obviously, if you're using a password manager like LastPass, make sure you inc- you have that second layer of authentication on the getting into the vault itself, because you know, all of your keys to the kingdom are in that piece, but add MFA to other pieces, other areas, to your credit card, to your, your bank account. So some of those really sensitive sites that you're logging into. So the, the final question is, you know, the, the election's over. So, so <laughs> we don't have to have painful political conversations with our family, but maybe we should be having painful cybersecurity conversations with them instead. <laughs> um, what do you recommend for um, bringing those we love into the uh, security circle, so to speak, and, uh, and, and having frank conversations with them about sensitive topics like their password hygiene? Yeah, I think this is an important one and also one that do, people do feel strongly about. You mentioned when you ask people about their password habits and they give you the sheepish, sheepish look yeah. or they have a system that in their brain they have, they have validated or secure and you're like, that's really not actually working. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not only is that not secure, but it's actually a roadmap. <laughs> yeah, right? Like you're actually giving them the keys. You're telling them how to go figure out this password. Exactly. And I, so I think it's definitely a tricky question, but I think the the key to it is education. And so understanding the risks, like some of the ones that we talked about earlier, especially around phishing. I mean, I don't know. I even think, I think about a lot of this, I think about some of like our elderly relatives, like they receive emails and like, just click on everything. Don't, you know, I think yeah. education around what, what an email, it, like a good email looks like, what could be suspicious. 
Um, or just ask, you know, ask somebody if you're not sure, you know, and being able to show it to somebody and get another opinion. But I really think the big piece is to like educate folks on some of those areas where you might see some of that suspicious activity so people can start to identify it for themselves. And I think, you know, the understanding those poor behaviors, why password reuse is so bad, what you can be doing to um, create stronger passwords and tools to help them. I think it's just all part of that evolution. Again, it's not something that happens overnight, but just something that, you know, really needs to be happening at, a, at an education level first. So Katie, should folks think about password managers as a uh, Christmas gift or as a, a New Year's resolution or both? Or both, maybe, you know, I think. <laughs> it's the Christmas gift that becomes the New Year's resolution. Exactly. You give the gift for Christmas, get your <laughs> on board, and then there's a little bit of New yeah. Year, New You, New Passwords feeling yes. to take into 2021. Absolutely. I love that. And I think, you know, again, we have all this time, but, you know, just an afternoon to get yourself up and running with, with the password manager. Uh, and thank you for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast once again. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. I appreciate it. Katie Petrillo is a product marketing manager at LastPass, part of Log Me In. Mm-hmm.